Greetings. This is Kevin Saunders of the Arizona Bible Class, and you found the podcast. The podcast is called The Gospel Comes to Life, and this week we look at the gospel for the coming Sunday. This week we'll be in John chapter 20, the first 10 verses. And in that gospel account, we'll walk through the narrative of the empty tomb because we're anticipating Easter weekend. And with that in mind, I'll also draw your attention to insights we can glean from the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke and its 24th chapter, the first 12 verses, gives us the synoptic summary of the resurrection narrative that will give us some more details about those who are present at that particular Sunday when Jesus' tomb was found empty and the revelation was gained that he had conquered the grave. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. And if you want to find out more about me and what I do, you can always go to the website, Arizona Bible Class, one word, dot com. And there you can read my bio and note some of my academic achievements and interests, background, number of children and grandchildren. And also you can access all the recordings that I've made over the years, 20 in number, through the entire Bible. So the entire Bible, all 73 books, is there for download and listening. If you're engaged in Bible study and enjoy this particular kind of insight gleaned from history and culture and geography, then it might be the kind of material that you would really resonate with. So feel free, find your way to the website. And while there, note uh, that I will be offering an opportunity to travel to Israel. We'll leave in October of 2020 on the 19th, returning on the 29th with the possibility of re, uh, also going to Petra, uh, Jordan. All the details about that trip can be found on the website, ArizonaBibleClass.com, by pressing the Travel Opportunities tab that will direct you to either Executors or Devotion Travel. They are one and the same. And there you can find the details about the trip and could actually register online. If you're in the Phoenix area, take a look at the listing of my venues and perhaps you can find your way on a particular day or time to hear me teach live. I'd welcome you as my guest. It's what I do. That's my bread and butter. And I additionally add the podcast to the work I've been doing with Relevant Radio on the Bishop's Hour here in the Diocese of Phoenix, a 10-minute presentation on a weekly basis of the gospel comes to life. And you can also access my Lectio Divina through the American Bible Society website. Uh, that is material that can be emailed directly to you twice a week that has an engagement with the scripture, meditating upon it, and putting practical application ideas forth from that presentation and meditation. That comes in the form of an email, something you can read. Uh, this obviously is something that you listen to. Well, having said that, let's jump into the gospel. The gospel of the resurrection. The resurrection, of course, is recounted in all four gospels. The first three we call synoptic gospels. It's a Greek word, a construct. The first three letters, S-Y-N, a prefix meaning with, and the rest of the word, optic, eyes, suggests that we have three 
authors with three separate sets of eyes and each sees a difference in the particular passage that they are relating and that collectively Matthew Mark and Luke is our synoptic witness John is written long after the synoptic gospels have been uh, documented and in wide distribution so that gives him freedom to focus on particular aspects unique to his eyewitness experience that are revealed quite consistently within his gospel. And that's why we have in the gospel of John the unique stories of Jesus and the engagement with the woman at the well in Samaria, the man who for 38 years in John chapter 5, a paralytic who was healed by Jesus, a man almsworthy most certainly who had been blind from birth, who has his sight restored, and of course we have the story of the calling forth of his good friend Lazarus, who had been dead and entombed for the better part of four days. We'll actually make mention of Luke chapter 24 and the story of the calling forth of Lazarus in John chapter 11 in the course of our study this particular day. So we come to the Gospel of John. It's the story of the empty tomb. It's the narrative of the resurrection. And it begins on the first day of the week, when Mary of Magdala, and we'll note in a moment other women in her company, come to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark, the light of dawn just beginning to illuminate the scene, and they saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. Well, let's pause here and remember that the first day of the week in the New Testament era is our current Sunday, not Monday, but Sunday, because the week comes to an end with the setting of the sun on Saturday evening. That's the Sabbath, the seventh day, which concludes with sundown on the Sabbath. So the first day of the week technically begins with sundown on Saturday night and ends with sundown on Sunday night. This lunar-based calendar has been part of the Jewish faith tradition since the time of the exodus out of Egypt. Remember, in Egypt, among gods worshipped the chief of the pantheon, the god Ra, the god of the sun. Before the tenth plague, the tenth of the death of the firstborn, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness, compromising Ra, the god of light, the source of all life in the world. There was a darkness, remember, in the book of Exodus, so thick and deep. Moses says it could be felt. Well, since that time of Exodus delivery, uh, the Jewish faith community and Christians by extension have been lunar-based in our religious calendaring, right? We're not going to mark time by sunrise to sunrise, but rather sunset to sunset to move away from the possibility of returning to Egypt. And so this particular narrative begins on the first day of the week when travel restrictions of the Sabbath have been obviously lifted and would have been hindered because of darkness. Mary of Magdala and the other women in her company arrive at the tomb as early as they can in the morning while it was still dark with what? Well, we learn in the Synoptic Gospels aromatic spices that they are intending to use to prepare the body of Jesus for eventual transport. 
and they have to access that body before the fourth day. That would be the day that you would believe absolute and certain decay and decomposition would have set in on the body and it would have been much more difficult to make that transport possible. These aromatic incense-based spices, if you will, would have been interwoven among bands in addition to those that the body had been prepared for in advance of being interred in that above ground tomb complex, imagining that that body then would be taken back to Galilee, where probably it would have been buried very near the grave of Joseph. Now, the Gospels don't recount that detail because the tomb was empty, but this may have been the motivation of the women that particular morning. Now, as I mentioned, I was and will direct your attention to Luke chapter 24, because in Luke chapter 24, we have more narrative details that help us flesh out the story that will continue in John's gospel in just a moment. So in Luke chapter 24, in verses 1 to 12, on the first day of the week, so far, so good, at early dawn, they, a group of women, came to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared for the specific purpose of preparing that body for eventual transport. It can't remain in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He's not related to Jesus, and tombs were reserved for families. This has been a temporary situation. Now, when they arrived, and I'm sure as they were making their way there, they were wondering who would roll away the stone for them. They found the stone already rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in to the weeping chamber, that first chamber that allows you opportunity with the illumination of the early morning hours to see deeper into the complex, they did not find the body. And it would have been the only body that should have been there because it was, as we remember in the Gospel of Matthew, a new tomb into which no body had ever been laid. Remember, if you put a body in that tomb, prepared for that purpose and seal it, that body will remain there for a year. And after a year, then the body will be recollected and the bones will be placed in a small coffin-like box called an ossuary. So if it had been a family tomb in use for a good number of years, there would have been other bodies in particular states of decomposition. That's not the case. This was a new tomb newly hewn into the rock, and the body of Jesus had been placed in that tomb as a generous offer of Joseph of Arimathea was accepted, and the body then placed there. Now, while they, back to Luke chapter 24, were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women, collectively, were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? A typical response to those visited by angels in the Bible is of fear and terror, because these are celestial beings who appear in glory's brightness, and you're beside yourself. Keep that in the back of your mind, because the next time an angel will appear to Mary, this won't be her response, and we'll understand why in just a moment. But these two ask the question, why do you women look for the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you, you women and others, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day 
rise again. And Luke reminds us that when interviewed, those women remembered his words and returning from the tomb. They told all of this to the eleven and all the rest. Now, among the eleven would be, in a moment's time, returning to the Gospel of John, Peter and John, the youngest apostle. But nine other apostles would have been there as well, in addition to other men and women who would have been present in that particular place, more than likely the upper room of the Last Supper. Now, Luke, because he's a journalistic historian, wants to know who was present at that moment. And he writes that it was Mary of Magdala, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and some other women with them who told this to the apostles. Mary, the mother of James. That James is not the mother of John, and therefore of James, the two brothers, the sons of thunder. This is a woman who is the mother of James, who will become the presiding Episcopal authority in Jerusalem, and in Acts chapter 15 will preside over the Jerusalem council. He will call and listen to witness testimony of both Peter and Paul about the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit's work among the Gentiles. And it will be this James who will write authoritatively that no Gentiles would ever have to be subjected to Jewish ritual, custom, or tradition, certainly not to be subjected to circumcision in order to be acknowledged as full members of the faith community. So his mother was among those who were there that day. Now in Luke chapter 24, the next verse reads, but these words seemed to them, meaning to the apostles, who were all males, obviously, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping down and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And then he went home amazed at what had happened. Why would these men consider this eyewitness testimony of these women an idle tale? Well, we have to allow for the culture of the New Testament era to inform us at this particular time in history. It's no longer the case in the Jewish faith community, but in the Middle East at that time, women had no eyewitness capacity. So rabbis would write about the possibility of a woman being at home with her husband. They're having a meal together when a murderous person breaks in and kills her husband in cold blood. She's the only witness, the eyewitness to those events. But in that particular circumstance, her testimony would not be allowed in a juridical assembly. She wouldn't be trusted. And so even though the apostles trust, honor, love, and have received Mary and Joanna and the mother of James and many other women in their company, they're still men of their cultural norm. And so they consider the possibility of their testimony to be less than authentic. They have to find out for themselves. And that's what Luke is conveying when he writes it. It seemed to them an idle tale, maybe just wishful thinking. But they did say that they were on the site, and they did reveal that the stone had been rolled away. And so that had to be the cause for their desire to go see for themselves. 
if the stone had been rolled away, the women had been there. They spoke to them about angels who had directed them to come and give this testimony. There must not have been present any longer. The posted Roman guard. So it was safe to make that journey. That's our backstory. That's what's going on behind the scenes. When I come back to John chapter 20, we note that Mary came to the tomb, saw the stone removed from the tomb, and in verse 2, now we know why, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and told them they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Who are they? Well, more than likely, it's a reference to persons sympathetic to the cause who knew that the body of Jesus could not remain forever in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who they imagined must have arrived before they did to take that body to prepare it for eventual transport. And the women wonder if this has been something commissioned by Peter and John and the others. They learn quite quickly this is not the case. So Peter and the other disciple went out to the tomb. The other disciple is John. They both ran, but the other disciple, a younger man, fitter in health, ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. Now, the entrance to the tomb had been opened. The stone had been rolled away. So he bent down and saw the burial cloths deeper in the burial chamber, but did not go in. He's assessing the situation. He's at the entrance to the tomb. There's enough light now in the morning to illuminate the darkened interiors. Everyone knows that there's only a single body that has been placed there on Friday afternoon before sunset. And to the best of his ability, John reveals he didn't see the evidence of a body, but burial cloths, right, that were lying in state, wondering what would be the cause of that. Well, then Simon Peter arrived after him, an older man, slower of foot, and he passed John at the entrance to the tomb and went into the tomb and saw what John saw, the burial cloths there. But because he's in closer proximity to the site, he's gone to the edge, let's say, of the weeping chamber where he could make then a more careful examination. He noted that the cloth that had covered his face or his head was not with the burial cloths, but was rolled up or in the original Greek, folded up in a separate place. He wonders what this means. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I need to call your attention to John chapter 11, because in John chapter 11, an event happens that Peter and John both witnessed. John chapter 11 is the chapter dedicated to the calling back from the grave, the good friend of Jesus, Lazarus. And at the end of that engagement, John chapter 11, after Jesus cries out in verse 43, Lazarus, come out. We read the dead man came out, tied or bound hand and foot with burial bands wound all around his body and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to him, untie him or unbind him or unwind him and let him go. So this would have been a process that would have taken a bit of time and would have released 
Lazarus from the bonds that the wrappings had been used to contain the aromatic spices that were intended to suppress the smells of decomposition. Now, coming back to our gospel narrative, clearly that is not the case with the burial clothes of Jesus. There was an orderliness about them, as if a body had risen out of them, and that which had contained him simply lay flat on the niche carved into the stone. And that cloth that had been placed over his head wasn't rolled up in a separate place, was folded up in an orderly manner, as if someone had done this to benefit Jesus. Now, as Peter looks and wonders what all this means, the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he went at least as far as Peter had gone, perhaps farther and closer to what Peter had been looking at. And it says he saw and he believed. And then the disciples, Peter and John, returned home, or that is, to the upper room where they had originally departed from, leaving the disciples and those women waiting for them there. Here's our opportunity to engage in a little Greek lesson, because we read that John comes and sees something, and then Peter comes and sees something, and then John comes and sees something. We actually have that word in translation as he saw, and then Peter saw, and then John saw, each with a different response. Well, the three words that we translate into English as saw are three different words in the original Greek manuscript. That's important as a consideration. So let me share with you this insight. John arrives on the scene and he bends down and he saw the burial cloths. The word in Greek there is the word blepo. And it's a very simple word, which means I saw what I saw. I can blepo a car. I can blepo an airplane. I can blepo a house. And I recognize it as a car, an airplane, or a house without any further or deeper consideration. And standing at the entrance to the tomb, John reveals what he saw. Now, Simon Peter arrives after him, and he moves beyond John into the tomb, and we read he saw the burial cloths, right, which is what John saw, and noted that the cloth that had covered his head was not with the burial cloths, but was rolled up or folded up in a separate place. The word in Greek that we translate saw here is the word thereo. The word thereo is the Greek word from which we derive the English word theory. And so what is suggested in the narrative is that Peter arrives on the scene, passes John, goes further into the tomb, and he begins to thereo the situation. He begins to carefully examine it and form a theory as to how this has come about. It's the mind actively engaged and testing possibilities. One theory after another was the body stolen. If the body had been stolen, why would the burial clause be in such perfect condition? In fact, if the body had been stolen, wouldn't the body have been stolen with burial cloths intact? And, and the, the shelf upon which the body had been laid should be empty, but that's not the case. And so when you carefully examine things, you form theories about them. And that is what Peter is engaged 
in doing. He saw all of this. He's thereoing it and trying to come to some cognitive conclusion based on what he's witnessed. And then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first. And that's John. And he saw and he believed. Well, he didn't blepo and he didn't thoreo. That word saw is the Greek word ido. And ido conveys intelligent comprehension. That is, he got it. He saw. He, like Peter, also was engaged in theoretical speculation. And based on what he saw and what his mind was able to process, he, and I'm sure Peter as well, came to an intelligent comprehension of the fact that Jesus had, as he had predicted, conquered the grave. And the evidence he left behind was sufficient for John and Peter to come to that intelligent, comprehensive position. And so that's why, after coming to that conclusion, they, as disciples, as students, returned home to share this good news. Now, I've omitted reading verse 9. Verse 9 is, obviously, to be read before verse 10. Verse 10 is the disciples returned home. John, our author, in editorial insight, reminds his readers that they, meaning he and Peter, did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead, but they did intelligently comprehend the fact that he had, in fact, risen from the dead. There was no Lazarus like need to unwind the body. There was no mess involved. It was a very, very controlled situation. And they left that tomb. Now, it's really not the end of the story. The end of the story engages Mary. And I, I don't want to share that with you. It's not going to be read in the gospel for Easter Sunday, but it's an important reminder for us all because she's the one who John leans into as this first sort of witness of the resurrection. And we read in verse 11 that Mary stayed outside the tomb weeping. That would mean after Peter and John had exited to go and report to the disciples the good news. And as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and she saw, and because of our insight gleaned from Luke chapter 24, again, the two angels in white sitting there, one at the head, and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. Note, there's no description of her fear at this point. She's accustomed to their presence, at least from the narrative's point of view. And they speak to her. They say to her, Mary, why are you weeping? Well, in point of fact, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And that could sound a bit derisive. Woman, why are you weeping? except that we acknowledge that the word woman, translated from the original Greek, means my dear one. Jesus addresses his mother at Cana as woman. He addresses his mother from the cross in John chapter 19 as woman. It means my dear one. And it has that sense of empathy. Why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. The bodies not here. And when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but did not know it was Jesus, because the last time she had seen him, 
He was bloodied and bruised and disfigured beyond identification. And that was the horror that was imprinted in her mind as he carried his cross to the site of his own crucifixion and died a torturous death. So not immediately did she recognize him, but he said to her, My dear, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Now she thought it was the gardener, the person in charge of the tomb complex, the person perhaps who had been commissioned to roll away the stone to give access to the disciples so that the body of Jesus could be moved and prepared for eventual transport. Sir, if you carried him away, if you're responsible, tell me where you laid him and I will take him. I realize that a body like that of Jesus can't stay in the tomb of a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, longer than three days because that's a tomb dedicated to family use and Jesus isn't of that family. So I get it, but I need to know where you've placed him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned because she's looking around wondering where the body of Jesus might be and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means my teacher. And then this lovely, lovely gesture. Jesus has to say to her, stop holding on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. She embraces him and is squeezing the life out of him, is not going to let him go. And he must have a wry smile on his face. Oh, Mary, come on, let go of me. I'm not going anywhere. But you need to go and tell my brothers and my sisters, the disciples, what you've experienced. And so Mary of Magdala went and announced to the disciples not only have you come to the intelligent comprehension that Jesus has conquered the grave, but I, she says, have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had told her to report. They were to meet him in Galilee. But we're ahead of ourselves now. We're celebrating the Feast of the Resurrection. And here's some homework for you. Find your way to the internet. You can Google this or you can find it on Spotify or Pandora. You'll be blessed if you do. Find the song called He's Alive by a Christian musician named Don Francisco. It's one of my favorite Easter time songs. It's a song that's based on our gospel for this coming Sunday, John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Again, Don Francisco, spelled like the West Coast City, singing He's alive. Make that your reflection this week. I think you'll be blessed if you are able to find it and listen to it. But for now, I never tire of reminding you of what a great student you are. I thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, share it with family and friends so that they can have access to the podcast as well. Let's, let's share this good news about the good news. But for now, that's all this teacher has time to do.